Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 8th of February, and uh, we, 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 uh, we have a lot of listener questions that we want to get to today, and you know that's in part because of the great response that we've had through Patreon so far. Um, I don't know, I personally am a bit overwhelmed with gratitude, which is a, seems a bit hyperbolic, but that's how I feel. You know, it's uh, the the response has been great so far, more than we expected, right, Tammy? Yeah, it's great, way more. And and uh, you know, I think that we had very realistic guidelines and optimistic um, expectations, and you guys really blew it out. And right now, I feel I feel like a NPR host, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like, <laughs> like we have it's more sentimental than the we're great, used to being. <laughs> the great programming that you get on, you know, well, I don't know, yeah. WUNC. That's the one that I grew up with. But um, before we do that, we want we have a really interesting topic today, and we have uh, we have Darren Byler with us today, and you might have remembered Darren from his uh, earlier his earlier appearance with Andy <laughs> on a podcast, okay. or you might know him from. Twitter, <laughs> but Andy, do you want do you want to uh, do you want to from introduce Twitter. your friend to the audience? Yeah, from I'm sorry, that, I didn't mean that dismissively. That's how I always no, assume yeah. people know who I am. They're like, oh, they must know who I am from Twitter. The Xinjiang guy from Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Jay is actually yeah the most Twitter of all of us. Uh, yeah, so this was for those who like um, or have just recently listened or started to listen the last few years or last few months. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, one of our early episodes last summer was Tammy and I talked to Darren early on, one of our fir- kind of first like one-off interviews, which I thought was quite good. Honestly, like I still see the episode shared by a lot of people on social media, um, you know, a lot of academics, but also activists who are just sort of curious mm-hmm. to find an accessible way to think about Definitely. what's going on and to make sense of the headlines. Um, so uh, it's honestly, uh, uh, I don't know about, you know, you two, I felt like very uh, heartened by the response that episode um anyway darren you know technically his position now he's a postdoctoral researcher in colorado are you in seattle or colorado right now i'm in seattle i'm in seattle here here for the duration until we go to vancouver in the summer yeah so the other development since last time we talked is darren is now employed uh with the tanner track position at simon fraser university all right vancouver congratulations and you get to go to vancouver that's amazing I know, right? It's sort of a dream come true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, very jealous, I am. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. We wanted to talk to you, um, not just for your life update, although it's um, a bonus, um, about this thing that's happened over this weekend that was kind of crazy. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you all want to, like, set it up? Or yeah, should we, just we should just say what happened, which is that, like, I don't know. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm, we're gonna do this thing where I explain it, and you guys, ex- you guys correct me as I just blunder through it. Okay, <laughs> but I'm gonna try and say it as succinctly as possible. If you did not know, this weekend, a bunch of Chinese people got. I, I'm also gonna say it as offensively as possible. A bunch of Chinese people got on tick on. Uh, no, got on Clubhouse, and it went crazy. Which and there like were all these conversations out, right? that were happening on Clubhouse. Yeah. So Clubhouse is not like Twitter. It is not like a, a video messaging. The, I went on it, and the closest thing that I could explain it as is it's sort of like live radio, 
where anybody mm. can start a radio yeah. station mm. and then you can bring up people who have joined the radio station to join in your conversation if they raise their hand there's like a little raise hand button oh, wow. and so that you can have these conversations so i went on and uh my first experience was my friend dexter dexter is uh speaks japanese he worked on the uh vice show with me and one of the segments that he did on vice that i've always loved was that he found he was friends with this black comedian in japan right and so mm -hmm. dexter who speaks japanese and this comedian were having a conversation in japanese on our show back on the vice show but this japanese guy has a, the 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 guy in japan has a ton of followers and so he jumped on when Dexter and I were having a conversation. Our conversation was literally like me being like, I don't know how to use this app. How do I use this app, Dexter? <laughs> and then like 120 or so Japanese people were listening to the conversation of me. Yeah, yeah because he hopped on. It seems like uh, it's sort of dynamic in that way. They just way. followed him. Yeah, where they're like, yeah. oh, so, so Ike is now doing something. And so I want to listen to Ike. Okay. Now, the other yeah. thing that we could have done is you can pull people out of the audience to come talk to you. So... I also heard Serena Williams and her husband, Alexis, giving a talk about competitiveness, which I also listened to and found totally fascinating. But, you know, you can pull people out and you can, those people can talk to Serena and Alexis, which is cool. I think that's wow. the appeal of it. So anyway, on that app, have I gotten anything wrong so far? <laughs> well, if you want to back up for a second, uh, the app was started in Silicon Valley, I think for those kind of conversations for thought leaders or yeah. enterprise leaders. like exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I don't know, when did you all first hear about it? I heard about it from, you know, uh, my other friend on the show, Merlin. <laughs> he had, he asked me if I want to join Clubhouse like a month ago. I was like, what are you oh, talking about? Oh, it's been around. Okay. And he was like in this Asian American Clubhouse trying to like raise class consciousness and it wasn't really working. <laughs> Has he heard of Time to Say Goodbye? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was trying to be like, trying to trying to push our show. Oh my God. But uh, I was like, whatever, silly Silicon Valley thing. And then it seems like this last week, uh, according to these reports, is when Elon Musk went on. That's suddenly like people in China oh my gosh, took notice. So and as I think most listeners know, right, the internet in China is very regulated. So most things that are kind of free and open like this get regulated in China. But for there was a brief window of time, uh, basically up until today, when people in the PRC could log on without, you know, using a VPN or anything. Wow. And it led to this kind of less than one week, basically over the weekend explosion of people in the PRC kind of spreading, you know, the link to this app and logging on. Um, and now there's like questions about like, it's obviously not a representative sample. Like the, the, the rooms that Darren and I were on were like a thousand people. Maybe when I was on, it was like a thousand. I don't know. Maybe it was larger when you were on. It was, Darren. it was, it was quite a bit bigger earlier in the day, okay. like, like 3,000 oh, wow. people. Oh, wow. Okay. Listening to one conversation. Wow. Exactly. So I think Jay's description is right. It's like a 24 seven public access radio show <laughs> where these like rotating hosts just kind of take listener questions, but like don't actually say anything. They just kind of invite the next okay. person on. Um, and it's yes, like it's crazy. Wow. Well, yeah. um, Darren, we have you on. And so like what what's going on with this? Like what I saw the same stuff is like everyone in China is on Clubhouse. They're selling <laughs> they're selling invites for like 10,000. I don't know what you want. Oh, is. really? They were monetized. Oh, yeah. They were oh, wow. like because you had to be invited onto this thing. So yeah, they're selling invites on uh WeChat or something, and uh, and so it was like the hot thing for like three days, and then of course it got shut down. So like, what what's going on with it? I mean, yeah. you know, you know some of you know about as much as I do in terms of like how people got aware of it in China. Um, I've really only been hearing about it for the last week or so, 
Um, but it sounds like the the app also it's it's backed by Agora, which has like a, a headquarters in Shanghai and in, uh, in in California. So it has like this Chinese sort of connection already. Uh, that might be some of what brought it to the Chinese public. I don't I really see. know. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that it's only used on iPhones, which is important yeah. in China because not that many people have iPhones. Most people have Android devices, so yeah. it means that it's sort of a, kind of an elite, like maybe urban and sort of educated you know, consumer base. Um, the the platform I think is is in English for the most part too, so mm -hmm. you have to kind of know okay. some English in order right. to really navigate it. Uh, well, so when did you first hear about the, it? And specifically, we were kind of want to talk about there was one particular chat room called the Xinjiang Have Concentration Camps that basically everyone on like China Watcher Media on Twitter just like got on. I, I was on Saturday for a couple hours. That's between my like crazy schedule. That's the only time I've really spent on. But I know Darren spent, you know, understandably a lot of his weekend listening to that because it's a lot of his, you know, his research and his personal connections are there. Um, but how did you first hear about it? Um, so I started hearing about like mostly people in Taiwan, I think, that were engaging with it and 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 talking to people in the mainland. And then I started to hear about this Xinjiang stuff. And it was just on my Twitter um, where I was like seeing people <laughs> post threads, um, going through what people were saying. And it was um, it sounded like from what I was hearing on the Twitter that a lot of people from Xinjiang themselves that were speaking, not not necessarily from Xinjiang, but like that's where they grew up. And so they're speaking from their personal experience. Yeah. Um, and it was a lot of Han people talking about um, things that in many cases they, they wouldn't talk about um, with strangers, uh, really personal stories. There's a lot of crying, yeah. a lot yeah. of sort of pathos. Um, and when I got on the thing and started talking about it with my friends, because they also joined then too, <laughs> um, we started talking about it as kind of a grassroots truth and reconciliation mm -hmm. event. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, in, in critical indigenous studies, like you should, there's a lot of critique of truth and reconciliation because it's, you know, state sponsored and it's a way of sort of um, yeah. getting like letting the state off the hook for the things totally. that they permitted in the past. Um, and 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 so it doesn't always come from the community themselves. But in this case, like the Chinese state is not sponsoring this event. <laughs> like this is coming from the people that really want to talk about something that they're not permitted to talk about otherwise. Wait, um, so just to reset then, right, just so that we have a clear vision of this. There is like a room on Clubhouse called what was it called the Xinjiang. What oh, what's uh, really happening in Xinjiang? Or, and then, does Xinjiang have concentration camps? That's the oh, part. so it's even more direct. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yes or no? Yeah. Poll. And yeah. and then inside of it, it's like sort of this, you know, mostly educated class of people of iPhone users in China, sort of having like just having it out, just. Yeah. emotions pouring out everywhere what were they talking about like you know outside of just like being emotional about it what were they saying the emotional part was a big part i was gonna say you know when i was the, my two like one or two hours listening i was talking to my friend who's also from china but not academic in the u.s we were like pretty I, we didn't actually say this literally to each other but i think we we're both saying like we're like crying as we're listening to this because there really is a sort of pattern where someone begins to talk they have their prepared speech ready and then a couple minutes into it their voice begins to crack and they begin to cry into that very like human part of you just yeah but what you know, were they like, like what was their speech about so i mean i'll just give one example like a woman saying like she was overseas she sent an article about she was on the she, on bbc she's found an article about xinjiang sent it to her mom then her mom like was disappeared basically 
and she hasn't seen her for a year that was like one that kind of stuck out at me because it was like one of the first that I just kind of heard, understood like clearly from beginning to end but I don't Darren do you want to kind of give some of the ones that you remember mm-hmm. I mean it was mostly like these Xinjiang Han people confirming that these camps exist and how like they kind of came to understand that they're real um, because there's a lot of discourse out there about them not being real um, or that they're just schools uh, or that the people and that the people that have been sent there have been sent there to kind of uh, be retrained and it's a benefit for them um, but then they like are also reading Western media about them and like trying to square that with what they're hearing from Chinese state media um, and so it's like a kind of coming to terms with their own sort of complicity in these systems um, and so there's stories about you know immediate relatives that have worked in the camps or that helped to build them um, and you know now realizing that you know this is my family member that did this and is part of this system and like maybe they didn't do it themselves the, the speaker them didn't do it themselves but like they have an intimate connection to it that they didn't realize they had before um, and so it's sort of just like you know realizing um, how these these systems really encompass the entire population um, and that there's no real escaping from them and and that there's you know feelings of shame and stuff that are associated with that too. Um, what do you do when you realize you're in this sort of perpetrator position? Well, you... before this, like, well, how did they, I'm, I'm sorry, Tammy, go ahead, yeah. Oh, wait, I was just saying, before this, how would they, like, was there any forum for them to have these types of conversations? I mean, was there, like, would they talk about it on, the only app I, the only three things I know about China are WeChat, <laughs> um, you know, Weibo. Kung Fu Hassle movies, and <laughs> Jackie Chan, <laughs> so racist. Two well, like Hong Kong, so technically. <laughs> <laughs> Dated and wrong. <laughs> Din Tai Fung, um, and Chen Ming, Chen Ming Wang. Like, uh, okay, so like, uh, were, there, were, they, were they able to have conversations about this before? Like, or is this, was this sort of a floodgate moment where, you know, a lot of things that people they finally saw a place that they could talk about this i think for people that are living in xinjiang like they can talk to their friends probably about it you know over the kitchen table or whatever or their family members to some extent but i think a lot of the people that were on this in this clubhouse room were not in xinjiang and were feeling have felt really isolated and not really able mm-hmm. to talk to people about them um and like having an actual one-to-one conversation with a stranger with someone you don't really trust yet um, is is risky because you can get put in in you can be detained you can be put in prison whatever arrested um, for talking to the wrong person uh, so this I think the kind of anonymity of this private public space I think really is what gave them the gave yeah. them the permission to talk yeah. that's, that's the, crazy the intimacy of the voice. I think really plays a big role. Just like imagine if every tweet you read was like read by yeah. a real human being, it would It'd be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I was yeah, about I, that. I could just like... all of it was read in Matt Iglesias' voice, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I was curious. So there's no photo, right? It's just the No, there are a lot of I I freaked out and like did not use my real name or photo, but a lot of people I I was kind of surprised. A lot of people so did use it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, I don't know. There's a little photo, like a circle photo. Avatar, and then yeah. They kind of, it's it, it's hard to be anonymous on that. At least it was for me, you know, like it was, uh, um, so I, at least the rooms I saw, most people seem to be using their professional photo. Interesting. And right. Their name. Um, yeah. But I'm sure that's different in China. Like how, how did, 
So, like, how long did this last? Like, how long did this? Because it's over now, right? Like, they shut it down this morning. Um, how long? Well, how long did this sort of explosion last? When did it start? It's, it's not actual. So, I think it started according what I from what I had read is like Wednesday was kind of this like informal tipping point because it was always open. It's just that mm. wasn't really used. Uh, so I Wednesday, just listened to wow. So like very recently, yeah, so less yeah. than a week, right? Um, so one thing, if you're in China and use a VPN, you could still use it. It seems like. And secondly, there are still a lot of PRC nationals, right? People who are from China who just live overseas, mm-hmm. and that kind of adds to the whole like class self-selection element. Where I just I just listened to a woman say she grew up in China, went to international high school, went to college in the U.S., is in grad school in the U.K. So you can imagine, right? She's not representative of like the teeming masses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in a way, she's just sort of like any sort of like you know, middle-class overseas Chinese student you would run into on a university campus um, all over the world, right? So it's not that unrepresentative, but it's certainly far from, you know, like random person on the street in China, right? Yeah. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I also wonder whether like the emotional aspect that you guys describe has to do with the fact that everyone kind of understood this would be an ephemeral project. Like it was eventually going to be shut down, right? At least... I mean, the VPN thing, I think a lot of people use VPNs anyway, but yeah. it does seem like it yeah. was kind of this concentrated blip that people understood to be the case. Yeah. Well, I saw like a lot of people when they started speaking, they would sort of apologize for being so nervous and like emotional. Because yeah. like, I think for like speaking to a huge audience, like 2,000 strangers is That's, like a, yeah. it's a leap, especially about something this sensitive for, for a lot of the speakers. The other thing that I think really heightened the emotions and I think really strengthened the event was the presence of Uyghurs themselves yeah. in the sort of moderator position. Um, there was maybe five or six Uyghurs that could speak Chinese really, really well. Um, I think that they'd obviously gone to what in Chinese is called Ming Kao Han schools, where that it was a, a Chinese medium school mm-hmm. rather than a Uyghur mm-hmm. school, um, which means that they're also coming from like elite positions in Uyghur society. Um, because the vast majority of Uyghurs, you know, grew up speaking Uyghur and go to Uyghur language school. And so they couldn't even participate in this clubhouse space um, because they, they probably wouldn't feel like they have the, the um, facility to speak in Chinese. Um, so anyway, th- these Uyghurs that were in the in the room, you know, they were speaking from their personal experience of their own family members being sent to the yeah, camps yeah. Um, of, you know, the communication between them and loved ones being cut off. Um, and you know personal experiences with discrimination stuff when, as they were growing up in the region, um, and I think that really shaped the the conversation in, in certain mm-hmm. ways because people maybe were hearing those kinds of stories for the first time. Some of the people in the room. Wow. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, that I think I think another thing a friend and I talked about was the fact that you know this this is a person who's from the PRC. But like goes to like is a is a is a you know is a academic in the United States and talking about this stuff in English is totally normal, right? You talk about this all the time in English, but to have these kind of frank conversations in mm-hmm. Mandarin, and to hear it being expressed in in Mandarin was like very surreal. It's like these yeah. this is the place like yeah. I mean in a weird way this is the place you're not allowed to talk about it or it's this is the medium, you're not allowed to talk about it in and it's I think that and if anything it also kind of probably for my friend was feeling this weird kind of sense of not loss but like displacement about the fact that you're not allowed to speak about this in your mm. own language so you always have these conversations in your second language so to actually hear it being discussed in your own language um you know with your fellow you know people you 
grew up with, I think, is really, I think it makes you realize how, what a weird double life you've been leaving, leaving, living, leading, leading, you know, for like decades. And I think that's, you know, that I think that's something a lot of these people, a lot of these people live overseas, right? And a lot, and I think a lot of, and it's very bilingual, like they throw in a lot of English words. There was this terrible person, this Canadian guy named Samuel, <laughs> who Darren knows. Sorry, like, Samuel, if you listen to the show. I don't show, know him. Why are you saying and, I know and him? And contribute to our Patreon. <laughs> I Googled him and figured out who he was. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we were both on the call at the same time where he kind of barged in and was like kind of explaining to all these Chinese people how racist they are and how they have to learn more about their history. It was like this terrible oh moment. And um, anyway, it was a little bit too bilingual at that moment. Are there, um, uh, so, I mean, what... <laughs> I don't want to like ask this type of question, but I'm going to like what you know. What what do you think the significance of this is? Because you know it seems like in some ways, this was a real watershed, and then maybe in some ways it's not a watershed. But like what what do you do you think? And maybe it is a moment of catharsis for a lot of people, mm-hmm. which obviously is very important. But like, is there is there any sort of ramification from this? Like it seems like. It almost the way you describe it, it almost feels like we watched like a home video or something like that that we weren't supposed to see or something like that, right? <laughs> like this sort of amazing footage. Like every documentary looks for it. Like where's the home video footage that nobody has ever seen of O.J. Simpson or of Michael <laughs> Jackson? Oh, no, I'm, I'm only saying this in terms of famous people, right? Like, and if you can find that, then that's amazing because people sort of see a type something in a raw form that they couldn't say, see before. Like what? Uh, it sounds like this is what this is. Is there a, a significance beyond that? I mean, like when it comes down to like actually changing policy in Xinjiang, probably not. Um, but it, you know, it's it's one step towards something, towards some grassroots movement potentially, or something like that. Yeah. Um, especially in diaspora. My Uyghur friend that was also lurking in the room, the guy I, I invited in, um, he said, like, well, at least it shows us that Han people are still human. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Fair. <laughs> um, and, and he said, you know, but he's also seeing that, like, there's still kind of a gap in terms of real knowledge of what it's actually like to be Uyghur. Um, but, you know, it's it's a start. And he thought it was it was really significant. And my other friends from the region, you know, also Muslim minority friends, they were I mean, a bunch of them were crying, like, you know, listening to it the whole time, mm-hmm. like just yeah. to hear people acknowledge the pain and the trauma that they've been going through and say it's real and like name it for what it is. Um, so it had that effect for people. You know, these people are going to go home and they'll talk to their friends about it. Um, I mean, they were already at home when they were speaking. Uh, so, you know, that's how movements get started. Yeah. I think there's some permission that was given to people to talk about it in the ways that it was talked about. So um, that's yeah. a, a step in the right direction. How, how many people were on this? On this, uh, How many ch- people in the PRC joined Clubhouse over the week? Like, is there... Was there any sense of it? Just because it seems like it was so many and it seems like it was huge international news in a lot of ways. Um, and that, uh, but then it's hard if there's, so there are like 3000 people in this room, I guess it's a lot. And um, I saw there were like other, other, I saw a ton of Chinese language rooms when I was on. So maybe it's like, uh, and I think those, I think those rooms are gonna continue for a while. That's the thing I, the thing I was thinking was like today, is going to make a difference, but it's not going to end a lot of these rooms. And 
in theory, like you could still talk across Hong Kong, Taiwan, China, and like uh, you know Chinese diaspora elsewhere, Singapore. That's always been there, so I don't want to like overstate the like difference, right? Like this has always been available to some degree, and in China you can use certain code words、mm-hmm. to get around censors anyway. So I don't want to make it sound like it's impossible to speak about this stuff in China. But I don't know. I was very touched to listen to the、yeah. like, a Taiwan speaker followed by a China,、yeah. mainland China speaker, and you know they like they meet each other in like the airports or like in these you know liminal spaces, but to just kind of have this twenty four seven conversation is seems significant. Um, Darren, I was curious when you said your friend thought they didn't quite get it. Still, like, what what in particular did you was were they kind of referring to? I'm not exactly sure what he what he was saying, what he was thinking about when he said that.、Um, but I think, you know, I mean, like there was a Han woman talking from Xinjiang who talked about how hard it was for her to get her passport.、Um, like she had to like apply to all these different bureaus and get a bunch of stamps and like. I don't know if in the end she had to also have like some relationship with like local officials in order to get it, and she was just like explaining to other Han people in the room that, from other parts of China like just how difficult it is because you're living in this space where like counterterrorism is like everything,、um, and so there's all these different security measures and stuff. Yeah. And then she was saying, and and you know I can't even really imagine what it's like for Uyghurs who have to go, you know. Through even more than I do, which is like a step in the right direction, but like、um, there's much more than just simply not getting your passport、um, and like the bureaucratic issues. Like it's,、uh, it's just, the entire life world of the Uyghurs is being kind of upended and replaced,、um, and and that's I think still something that needs further explaining. But people are trying to explain it. Like there was this one person that was talking about Australian Aboriginals、oh, wow. and like making、yeah. the. The comparison to the Uyghur situation, and and like that's the kind of like comparative thinking that needs、that's、to happen,、um, and and I was you're seeing it in some places there. Yeah, I mean, what I thought was interesting was I think this especially for like the people who live overseas, and they talk about like I mean I'm in like an ethnic studies program, and you see something. I think one of the speakers said, <laughs> and they are beginning. You can begin to see this mixture with like the United States like language about like white supremacy. And 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 that kind of stuff, and I'm not sure how I feel about it, but they're definitely kind of saying the same thing that you would, you would find in the United States, which is like、um, when someone commits a crime in China, but they're Chinese, it's just a crime. If a, if a you know Uyghur person is accused of a crime, it's a terrorist crime, right? Which is the stuff you would hear about, you know, how white and non-white people are treated differently in the in the eyes of the law in the United States or other. And it's interesting that、um, I don't know if it's like. United States or sort of Western discourses about racism are entering into the Chinese space, or if it's just this is just like objectively true and universal, and and this isn't necessarily we shouldn't obsess、yeah. about like where it started. Maybe it's just、yeah. like it's good that it's circulating、yeah. these kinds of ideas. But, yeah, that、um, sounds. I mean, well, it sounds amazing that you would, of course, you know, that you would draw that someone could. You look. I'm very loath to say that these types of technologies have transformative. Power because we've seen what happens in the past, and also they're too, way too powerful as is. But what, like that sounds like an amazing like I, Dylan, I, Darren. I'm sorry, I promised that I wouldn't do that, <laughs> Darren. I don't know why. I you know there's a kid in my middle school. It's because his last name has、no, an L. No, there's a kid in my middle school whose whose name was 
was Dylan, and his last name is very similar to yours, and I'm getting it mixed up. He like sort of bullied me, and I always hated him, so I won't hold it against oh, no. you. But, um, but <laughs> I'm glad I'm not Dylan. Though. Yeah, yeah If you are, then we're gonna have. I might visit you in Vancouver. The uh, um, were these types of com- you have studied this for a while. Like, were these types of comparisons made in the past? Like, you know, sort of internationalist type of thinking, comparing your plight yeah. to somebody else, like or or you know was was were you surprised to hear that you know a comparison to like the aboriginal uh, aboriginal people in in australia uh well those kinds of comparisons i think are, are relatively new but what one of the things i noticed when i was living in the region living in xinjiang in, in 2014 and 15 was that people that were coming from like lgbt backgrounds um or you know where some other saw themselves had experienced being a minoritized person in some other way um you know like even some christian folks uh, not that i met many but um i've i have encountered them in the past um who who would see themselves also sort of as a persecuted other in some ways they they had some ways of thinking from the Uyghur position mm-hmm. Um, and identifying their own descript- experiences they had had with the ways that Uyghurs are treated. Um, okay. And they would say, you know, the Uyghurs are being treated even worse than us. And I saw that also in this room uh, the other day, is that you know, people had been discriminated against in the U.S. as international students, and you know, they remember what that felt like, and then they started to think about, oh, we treated Uyghurs in my school back in China in similar oh, ways. Yeah. Um, and like they, so they were drawing those sorts of connections. I think the more like kind of discursive framing of like how is this similar or different from aboriginals or white supremacy or whatever that's something that people are just now starting to think through the one thing i saw on twitter after the fact was someone talking about hansplaining oh, which i thought really was a, a nice way of framing it <laughs> I, <love that. laughs> I mean it does seem like i'm gonna use that settler colonial i'm gonna use that you know, kind of under sharpened yeah. understandings of settler colonial behavior in different contexts, like is probably part of that kind of critical indigenous studies thing you were talking about. Um, I have a mm-hmm. methodological question is like, which is, I know, like as a journalist, how journalists use this sort of thing, like if we were to come into that room for five hours and take notes, how we would process that. What mm-hmm. is the, the kind of use value of this exchange for a scholar? How do you incorporate this as an ethnographer into your work? And how would a journalist do it too? You should also okay, tell I'll us because we we're two we're two on two at this her. point. Yeah, <laughs> Jay, come up with a good answer. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I'll pretend <laughs> to do reporting. All right. Like, well, I write about myself first. <laughs> Jay's right. like the first uh, twelve hundred words of your reflection on logging in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, this is crazy. But Darren, you first. My experience downloading it. Yeah, Darren, go ahead. Well, it's a little. I mean, I don't. I haven't. I, had, I took tons of notes, but I haven't really started kind of thinking through how I'm going to use them. Um, typically, when I interview people that are speaking in these ways, like I'm able to follow up with questions and like sort of help yeah. them unpack like uh, an event. Because, uh, you know, when people start crying about something that they experienced, like they're being moved in some way. Like that's like kind of an affective encounter or, or, or feeling. Um, and so there's some kind of like, like, something is moving them there's some there's power that's that's moving in the world and so i want to kind of unpack the the structural issues that are underneath that the the the, the ways that these conflicts have been brought together um you know what does class uh, position gender position those sorts of things mm-hmm. have to do with the story um and then 
so often it's like helping people sort of realize what that experience meant um, and then helping them kind of tell that story from from that structural position. In this case, like they're just talking. So I have notes of what people are saying and so I can kind of look for commonalities, I think, between them, the sorts of things that people brought up over and over again, um, look for patterns. Um, and that's how you start to tell the story of this event. I think what, what uh, Andy was saying about like kind of the patterns of how they talked over time mm-hmm. and like would break down, like that's interesting. Yeah. That's something to think through. So that's that's the next step. Yeah, for me. that's interesting. Well, someone must have recorded all of this, huh? Like someone oh, must yeah, have recorded sure. it. So yeah, it must. Be. I think I think honestly, the fear is like the wrong people right, recorded yeah. it. Yeah, um, yeah, that's I d- true. I, think that I mean, know some like it, very nationalist Twitter accounts are talking about taking notes and names. I see on everyone who talked. Who? You know, just like one of these sort of like pro-China accounts. Least, Not necessarily the government back. Well, it could be. I don't know. Are we allowed um, to say I, the T word anymore? We've been scolded <laughs> for it so much. I don't even know what it means. It's like the most... We talk about it all the time, and I, I'm yeah, always like, I don't know right. what this I don't know what this discourse is. My but. new philosophy is not to mention it. Um, okay, so we'll call it the T word. We can't <laughs> Everyone's really confused. The, and the, make, the and make it even more... The T word that rhymes with, like... Uh, Banksy? Banky. Or something. <laughs> 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 we can't say that word anymore. All right. Uh, um, I mean, as journalists, as journalists, would you all feel... Uh, like you couldn't use this stuff or no we could use it but we would i think we would try and protect i don't tammy what do you think i would there's no reason to name an anonymous screen name right right and so um if you felt like the people were protected or you could reach out to them and get in touch with them then you could use it but honestly it seems like the best version of this is some sort of you know like doc audio documentary type of thing where you compile all of these together and then um, and then you translate it and you put it on YouTube or something like that. You know, like that seems like the best, mm. uh, the most effective mm. use of it. Because when you have, uh, you know, when you have first hand told raw stories, you know, like it's generally better not to just step on them and, you know, assert yourself as a journalist in it or, or even write about it in this sort of pa- uh, passive journalistic voice, right? Like both of those seem like it would strip away from it. So, you would hopefully just let the recording speak for itself. I don't know. That's how I would approach it, but um, I don't know. That might. I don't know if that's too like verite <laughs> supremacy type of thing, but that seems right to me. Verite <laughs> supremacy. It's a thing. Trust me. If you spend enough time around documentary filmmakers, you'll know about verite supremacy <laughs> and how 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 they're generally right, but they're annoying. You know, Tammy, I what agree. would you I'm do? I'm a verite partisan too. Um, <laughs> I yeah I like that idea I think I I liked what Darren you said about kind of taking trends generally from it I think that's what I would do if I were kind of just writing a print piece um I think maybe contrary to Jay I I think certain screen names I would probably be okay using like if you were just kind of doing like a sampler to represent a few different perspectives you might say you know whatever like boy 39 said and you know but yeah, I think generally it would be for trends, and if it, there were the possibility of contacting those people later, that would be the only way to like get something more, um, I guess, personal out of it. It's yeah. it's just the verifiability question is always such a tricky one. Yeah. So I think yeah. you just, you know, you take it for sort of general statements and input. Yeah. 
but I know all of the Uyghurs that were there, like moderating, and like they definitely like all of them are already way out there yeah, talking all the time to the public. So that, like, yeah. like those those people, and the, also the other moderator moderators, I think would be happy to do interviews, yeah. and um, I think that's maybe what I would do next too. I'll do next also. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we're the we 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 promised that we would only take. 40 minutes your time and so we're running up on that right now but like where do you see this going next like where do you think that do you think people will try and vpn in do you think they'll try and figure out some alternative um you know generally when these things happen it's not like people just go away once they feel like they've been heard right they try and seek people seek them out first of all and then they seek out other ways to express themselves i, I found yeah. this to be very true when I was studying, uh, you know, people who were living in northern India, you know, who had escaped uh, Tibet. And, um, you know, like once their, their commitment towards getting these stories out was humbling and mind blowing to me, you know, and I imagine that that is similar. Like, what, do, you see, do you see Clubhouse becoming a place where this happens? Other places? Like, what do, what do you think? Hmm. Well, um, so one of the things that like journalists have done with this story, like the, this experience, is like the New York Times has already written about it, um, but also the Global Times, which is the Chinese newspaper. Um, they interviewed someone with the surname Zhang, who is in the room, who works in California. She's in California, <laughs> and she said she left after thirty minutes because like the perspectives were so one-sided, and there was no freedom of speech to like express like the like Chinese state view. Wow. Um, they would just be kicked out by the moderators. <laughs> um, and so like the, the official narrative. <laughs> They've the learned media... from the American right wing then. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. She lives in the OC. Really yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like, so, I was listening to this, uh, I was listening to this Sam Harris podcast. And let me tell you, <laughs> it all came flooding to me. <laughs> So that means if the Chinese state media is picking up on it, like that means that people are getting the message everywhere in China that this thing exists and it's like a space where you can talk about real stuff. Uh, Because a lot of people that are critical of the state, like they read right through that discourse and understand what's actually happening. So it might expand and there might be more VPNs. Um, Paul Moser, who's the tech reporter for the New York Times, thinks that there's going to be these different variations of Clubhouse that will spring up in, in in China, he's watching for them. Like Chinese Clubhouse. Uh, yeah, like sort of like branding on it, but like, you know, really, yeah. doing, makes sense. doing something God. slightly different. That must be so hellish to moderate, just to be in all these rooms to make sure nobody says anything. Um, <laughs> Andy, you're sympathizing with the state censors? <laughs> I think the one thing I think about this is just like, at its great, like at, at its largest, Darren, you're saying about 3,000 people were in the room. Like, I think a lot of people are kind of concern trolling. Like, this isn't representative. This is obviously, like, urban, young, iPhone users. And I think a lot of that stuff we should not ignore. Like, that's true. And I think, I'm I'm just not sure what to do with it. Because honestly, if you read um, just, like, any book about how people thought about the world at the time, you're always just reading what the elites thought, you know? And it's it's almost impossible to really get, like, what everyone thinks. And... So that, like, that, that, that limitation is there, but it's also like not that unique, if that makes sense. And this is you know, far more democratic than you know, like reading, uh, reading what, you know, like the 10 publications that came out in a year you know, yeah. in, in, the, in the past. So 
I, I think that overall it's still more democratic than what was before mm-hmm. it's just obviously still very limited and i think that's something that you know we shouldn't we don't want to go overboard and be like the whole country has like the the, the crushed masses are all yearning for freedom and they're all spontaneously <laughs> blah, blah blah like it's not right it's yeah. it's a it's a it's a specialized segment of the population um you know i was on i was on i went on clubhouse for a different reason it was because there are all these conversations happening they're led by Daniel Day Kim and some um, Asian American activists about what's been happening in Oakland mm-hmm. and in San Francisco. And we got a lot of listener feedback about this. Uh, you know, we got questions we, on Patreon. We got some of my friends who uh, subscribed to the show also texted me about it. So Bradford, uh, you know, we, I got your text to talk about this as well. And, um, you know, I I think we should talk about it. And, you know, it's like what has happened is essentially there has been some very high profile caught on video attacks against very elderly Asian people. So in um, Chinatown in Oakland, there's been a lot. And one of them was caught on video. It's horrifying to watch. It's somebody shoving an old man onto the ground in San Francisco. A 90 year old Thai man was shoved down also on video and uh that man died he ended up dying you know which is like horrifying to think about and it's led to sort of a similar type of thing that happened at the beginning of the pandemic where you know the subtext of all of this is that if you watch these videos and the ones that become very public the majority of the assailants are black Mm -hmm. and that the victims are generally old people and so there is this outrage that happens and that what that sort of inspires is also this like kind of secondary outrage like oh we can't even talk about this right because it's not politically correct or whatever right like that would be the that would be the argument i think that that is what's driving a lot of this and so with this latest spate of violence you know people generally who were willing to ignore it i think in the past right have sort of come out and i've seen a lot of asian celebrities like Naomi Osaka came out and said something about it, right? She did a tweet saying, like, this is outrage, and I wouldn't even have known about it if I didn't see it on Instagram due to some algorithm. Like, that's what she said. Mm. Weirdly, Paris Hilton tweeted about it, you know? Um, I think one of her friends was one of these people who recorded a video. Um, But Daniel Day Kim seems to be the person who is at the center of it, and he even went so far as for the Oakland attack to issue a $25,000 reward to anybody who had information on the, on the person who had done this. And today that person was, was captured or was like, you know, brought in or somebody, a person of interest was brought in who they think did this. Um, same thing that happened in San Francisco. The person who shoved this 90 year old person was almost immediately apprehended. And it's a 19 year old kid and he's like awaiting whatever he's going to be charged with. And so we have these questions coming in about it. I think that we should talk about it because I think it's thorny. And, you know, I think that we do. I don't know. I I, I think about this a lot just because it seems to exist in this very, very sensitive space. You know, this very difficult space to talk about. So uh, Kathy Hun uh, wrote us and we want to read her her email. She said, hey, guys, love the pod. Still subscribe to and um, subscribe to your Patreon. Thank you very much, Kathy. If you're not aware, just wanted to point out the attacks on Asian elders circulating on the internet. There's been a bit of an uproar in the Asian community about this, and I'm seeing lots of anti-black sentiment, given that the perpetrators seen on cam footage have been black men. There's some Asian celebs offering a cash prize to find these people. There's a lot of support from different Asian communities behind this initiative, and it's rubbing me the wrong way. I'm sure these are the same Asians that were making BLM statements back in June. 
I guess my question is, how can we demand accountability for these hate crimes without perpetuating anti-blackness? Now, this seems to be the central, central question of all this, right? Like, you know, like that's the difficulty of it, right? Because um, how do you say, I don't want to do this, or I don't think that this should happen without like, you know, first, you know, encouraging like incarceration, right? Yeah. Which uh, like more police presence is something that I saw that was demanded. It's sim- you know, in some ways it was similar. Remember like when there was all the attacks against the Hasidim in Crown Heights and in South Williamsburg, a similar dynamic, right? Where that community felt like they couldn't talk about it and nobody cared about it because the attackers were black and they weren't, right? And they're like, oh, PC culture is protecting this and nobody is, all the liberals are afraid to say anything about it. And so we have to protect ourselves. We know we need more police. We need guns, like, right? This is a type of conversation I think that's been happening, especially here in the Bay Area, which is strange because you would expect the Bay Area to be like a bastion of tolerance and like good times and <laughs> not guns, you know, but, but I don't know. Uh, Tammy, what, what did you think about all this? Like, or what do you think about Kathy's question about, about how we should process this in a way? Yeah, I'm coming to this late. I, I had kind of missed the first round of news around this. So, um, I guess I was curious, first of all, just about like what the anti-black sentiment looks like. I mean, I I don't think, for instance, that it's anti-black to recognize the race of people if there is a pattern in this behavior. Um, so I don't know exactly what that refers to. I mean, I think once we recognize that all of the assailants in the, the spate of crimes were young black men and all of the victims were older Asian people, like it obviously demand some sort of confrontation with that from both of our communities or all of our communities about why that's going on. But um, yeah, I'd just be curious to if we could sort of disentangle, you know, just like a kind of factual acknowledgement from something that feels more loaded. Right. So I think that's true. And I will say that what we shouldn't, and this is part of the difficulty of it, right, which is that it is not always black, young black men who are doing these attacking, right? Like, the whole Benetton yeah, ad of, of racist attack Asian people. Now, the difference seems to be that when it is a white person, it is blown up in a way and that that person's race is always discussed, right? Like it's like a white man did this, a white man did this, right? And that when it's not, it does seem to be kind of, you know, there's a discomfort that's palpable about discussing it. And I think that's what people are, are reacting to, right? Like how do we deal with it when it does seem like a lot of it seems to be young black, black men who are attacking old Asian people in the Bay Area. This isn't new. You know, this isn't something that started just during COVID. There's a big case here right before COVID hit, actually, and it was, like, huge in terms of social media, you know, and people were sharing it all over China. There's this old man collecting cans in Bayview, and he gets sort of harassed by, you know, a group of young people. One of them says, like, I fucking hate chinks, right? And they attack him, and, you know, a lot of Chinese people, a lot of Asian people in the Bay Area were calling for Chesa Bowden, who's, or Bowden, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, the very progressive DA, you know, here in San Francisco, to pursue hate crime charges against this person and to, like, throw the book at them, right? Because they were saying, if this was reversed and an Asian person said this to a black person, then you would charge them with hate crime, so you have to do it. He ended up not doing it, right? Like, he, he took a restorative justice path, and uh, he said that the man who was collecting, that that was a decision of the man who was collecting cans. Some people, you know, are like, well, you know, like how could he make that decision? Like you're the DA, right? But well, that, that, that is how restorative justice works though, but. Sure, sure, sure. 
that case is still in people's heads, you oh, know, okay. I think. Like, they want to know where the justice was there. Yeah. And I think when it started happening again, or when this high-profile thing happened and this man died, I think that's where the anger comes from, yeah. right? I think it has, at least here in the Bay Area locally, I think it has a lot to do with Chessa. I think it has a lot to do with that case. Mm -hmm. I think Asian people here, I think a lot of Chinese people who have relatives who live in the Bay Area have been really paying a lot of attention to mm -hmm. this. And not just Chinese people, obviously Korean people as well. Um, Japanese people as well, but mostly, you know, like in terms of the social media blow up, like a lot of it does happen in on WeChat. And uh, I think that it's made a lot of people very angry, mm. you know, and I think that's sort of the subtext behind all of this. Um, and that that does feel right in some ways, like it is a reaction against blackness and like black tropes on crime and violence and everything like that. And I think that's what makes people uncomfortable. I don't think it's just how do we deal with this specific situation? I think the subtext of it is like, we can't ever get justice when it's this type of person attacking us. I don't know. Andy, what do you think? Yeah, so like Tammy, I did not really follow the story until we were talking about it this afternoon. I think it's what it sounds like, what's, like, you know, I, don't, I don't know, obviously we don't know the facts and I think we would all agree like the best thing to do is just to like stick to the facts as much as possible, you know, like, try to identify the people and not go overboard with it, not sort of like stereotyping. And, and I assume that's what the anti-black sentiment is, right? Starting to make all sorts of assumptions about who they are, why they do it, and you know, like why their group versus our group, and so on. I think what you're getting at, Jay, is sort of um, you know overlapping with, but not not the same thing as like the actual um, you know uh, the, the actual events themselves, and how do you how do you deal with that legally? I think what you're kind of getting at is this sort of um, frustration with a sort of liberal anti-racism yeah. that right is really easy. That really, especially white anti-racism, that very easily goes after self-flagellatingly, right? Goes after white or portrays the only racist as white people, and then are failing to deal with the complexity, or they just kind of feel like, for instance, black or any sort of non-white group in one-dimensional terms, and is failing to deal with the complexity of the fact that they're not not no one in any group is an angel, right? And it's um and it, and then it becomes in, in like very transparently hypocritical. Um, maybe not to everyone but in, for like in this particular case right for the people who are victims of this crime yeah hypocrisy becomes very obvious and i think that's separate from like the actual you know right, sorting out the legal issues like this is like the thing that's kind of driving a lot of people crazy right yeah and the other thing i'll say is that they're not even necessarily mad at white liberals their real anger is towards asians yeah. who act like white liberals <laughs> you know so it's like like, I'm sure that they would be that these people, if they're listening to this podcast, would be mad at both of you for not even knowing about this. You know, they'd be like, oh, those <laughs> yeah. like elite liberal, liberal Asians and their fancy Ivy League degrees. They don't even pay attention to this stuff because they don't want to think about it. Right. Like that would be the sentiment. That's what they would say. And they would say, oh, they're willing to like go to bat for anybody who attacks anyone except us. And when it when it attacks us then they hide because they don't want us to be victims because they don't want to have to deal with white people who are like, what the fuck's going on with you and black people, you know? And then they, and then you have to come up with some answer that you don't want to have that conversation. That would be their accusation. And I don't like, I would normally just say like, well, whatever, you know, but I think that's a lot of people feel that way now, you know? And I don't think it's, I think it's like, you know, like I think it's a ton of people, basically everyone who is not part of, you know, the, the people who have access to these types of liberal conversations and by in some ways need to 
have them reflect on them, right? Or have to participate them in have to participate them in some way where they know that their career and their like standing with like liberal white people is affected by that. I think anyone who is not in that group is pretty angry about this, especially here in the Bay Area, right? And that their yeah. anger is really reserved for like Asian American sellouts who they think are like going around being like oh, trying to minimize this as much as possible. And they're like, no, like there's in, in their mind, they're like, there's a race war going on, you know? And you guys are pretending like it's not happening because it, it's inconvenient mm-hmm. for you yeah. that, to, to say it is. I think that's all true, by the way. You know, I think that they are right fundamentally. I think that there is a lot of callousness amongst like the Asian professional managerial cl- not to use that term, the P word, <laughs> <laughs> the P acronym. A- a- P- APMC. <laughs> the P word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A- a- P- MC. A- a- P- I- P- MC. <laughs> and AAPIPMC. A- to uh to to minimize this you know and to 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 their first reaction is not outrage their first reaction is let's not be anti-black right and they see that as like a sellout move and i will say that like you know and i think that it's important to be honest about this stuff and i think that you know as somebody who would be classified as such and as someone whose first response is that then yeah there is part of it that is self-preservation you know there is part of it that you don't want to have a uh difficult discussion there is part of it where you don't want to be called a racist or a reactionary because you're mad about this stuff you know but um and it's a very difficult position to be in because you are basically playing defense all the time and i think that in the end you're just kind of like hoping that it goes away i don't know what do you think yeah yeah it's tough because you know the the most publicized version of this would be something like um, the one that you would normally see would be like the black community talking about violence and racism from white police officers or white people, right? And that's just like a socially acceptable way of talking about almost in like very um, Manichean, Manichean, whatever the word is, yeah. right? Like moralistic terms, like these people are evil and we are the victims and it's just acceptable on both sides. And this is not, this is not a, this is not a scenario that circulates and people are, and I think, I mean, yeah, I don't know how I would even talk about it. Like, I think a lot of the discourse around this from the defensive side is like, well, we haven't, you know, this isn't targeted. You know, this isn't racially targeted. And like, it reminds me of the thing about Harvard discriminating against Asian students where you're like, I have my own politics and I believe my own politics. And, you know, I support diversity at school. But please don't make me lie and say that Harvard isn't mm. discriminating against yeah. Asian students. Of course they are, you know. And with these attacks... Yes, they're racially motivated. You know, it's like if you say they're not, then you're really sort of selling up, you know, like you're doing a little bit of magical thinking there. Um, And uh, I don't know. I just don't know what to do about it. It's just like, and I think everyone doesn't know what to do about it. No, let's talk about the specific things that have been done about it. Tammy, what do you think about Daniel Day Kim offering out a (laughs) $25,000, you know, Or of yeah. you know reward for, for to, to on any information about this about this kid. You know? Yeah, I think or he's he's not a kid. He was twenty eight years old or twenty nine years old. The so guy who's been arrested. Yeah, in, in Oakland. Yeah. Um, I think as a political stunt, you know, it's it, it achieves what he wants, which is a recognition that this is a crime that matters and that this person's life matters and that we should honor this person as a victim. Um, I think the method of it is kind of gross honestly just because i don't think we should do that to any kind of suspect 
Um, yeah. I also, just to return to what you guys were saying earlier, I mean, I think the other part of this is just, and I don't, I don't know why I hadn't heard about it. I honestly have just been researching me and Marmot all week, so I haven't really been reading much <laughs> local news. But um, I think like part of it, it too is just this thinking about when we're trying to look at like yeah this question of state violence and suffering. Like it's very hard. People don't want to look at a, a thing like this and think about the fact that black people could act in a concerted way against a race. You know, I think like when black people are the perpetrators, we don't want to think about there being something kind of structural going on in these people's head and placing that in a framework um, because it's like distasteful and it also runs against what we know about power. You know, whereas like when white people are alleged to have committed a hate crime, we kind of know exactly what's going on there and it fits our understanding of history, you know? So I mm. think like. Yeah. It's I think that that part of it is like very hard. I think the other the thing that I'm struggling with too is like I think a thing that I've kind of, that repel has repelled me a little bit about this thing about like stop Asian hate crimes as a hashtag and a kind of way of thinking since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic is that I personally am against escalation and aggravation of penalties for things considered hate crimes. Like I take a kind of or public defender view of like a murder should be punished like a murder everywhere always um, yeah. because I think it leads to just like more and more imprisonment incarceration but but yeah I mean tell that to the family of this Thai grandfather who was killed you know so I think yeah. I'm yeah I think I'm wrestling with that I mean I don't want to take myself off the hook for any kind of you know, ignorance about this, but I also think there is like a little bit of a carceral thinking going on that we need to be careful mm. about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's what makes me uncomfortable yeah. too, is that um, it's like justice can only be exactly meted out if like they, if, if they get the same punishment yeah, that we like would, everyone needs if, to the, suffer. if the roles were reversed, right? Like, and that's part of the thinking. That's a lot of the discourse that you find. You're like, well, if an Asian person did this to, you know, to a black grandmother, they would be in jail for hate crimes and everyone on the Internet would be mad about it. Guess what? That's true. For sure. You know, that's true. It's absolutely true. And it's because of the history of racism in this country and who is usually the victim of this type exactly. of stuff. And I don't think that we should lie about what the issue is, just in the yeah. same sure. way that I don't think we should lie about Harvard discriminating and that we should understand that that type of fact when it is covered up and when people like us come out and say, well, don't, don't do X because it makes me uncomfortable, that that feeds more rage, right? Yeah. And so I don't know what the solution here, though, is because the other side of it is anti-black, you know? Right. The other side of it is enabling the carcer carceral state. The other side of it is feeding into horrific stereotypes, and, and not just stereotypes, but also like sort of like encouraging a fucking race war. You know, yeah. and like all that is bad. But, you know, I don't know. There, I, I guess my only point is that like we shouldn't start in the same way that like one's advocacy of Black Lives Matter should not be like centered around yourself yeah, and yeah. say, here's my lesson. Here's my letter to like my racist Asian parents. Right. Like that is useful to nobody. I don't think that the response from people should be like, Hey, I feel uncomfortable about this, so let's take out all this stuff that makes me uncomfortable, right? We should we should embrace the stuff that makes us uncomfortable about it, and we should try and think about it in this type of way. And Tammy, I don't know. I think that the way that you've thought about it is actually quite good, which is just like, 
hey, let's talk about ending hate crime, period. You know, yeah. let's see. How, I think that would be an extremely unpopular <laughs> suggestion, but I agree with it. You know, like I, I and I think it's something that people should think about. Right. Like, why do we have hate crime? Why do we have hate crime? Uh, you know, whatever. Like, what's it called? Like uh, additional penalties for that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, multipliers on on these types of on these types of crimes. Like, yeah. Why 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 is our thirst for this stuff when it is comes out of a place of like racism? Like, why do we feel like somebody should go to jail four times longer yeah. than somebody else? You know. Um, yeah, and I think one takeaway from this is that it would be a real step forward for us to recognize that racism is very much more complex than just white black. And yeah recognizing that doesn't take away from the white black story but i think that's kind of the fear that so everyone is so wet to the sort of white black story that um they just like aren't allowing for the space for but like obviously we live in a much more complex society than that and part of it all part of that also would be like to remove the more moralism away from a lot of this racism stuff and make it less about good and bad people which i find mm-hmm. annoying and when it is a white black story you know much less than the other one anyway and just kind of think about how this stuff is really complex and moves in different ways across all these different groups um and uh we should strive for that instead of just trying to keep things as simple keeping things as simple as possible yeah yeah i think also we haven't talked about um kathy parkong's book too much on the show but i do think this whole theory that she's arguing in the book you know minor feelings which is essentially this this feeling that we're describing, which is that Asian people, I think because of our kind of interstitial position in the kind of race hierarchy or arrangements of the U.S., often feel bad about feeling bad and don't quite yeah. know how to process it. I think that, you know, there's something really right about that and is, is kind of animating some of this conversation. Oh, for sure. You know, it's like, um, and then there's also this part where it's like, I just want someone to acknowledge that this happened you know and yeah, that totally. it's bad and i think that they're not finding that uh when they you know they're certainly not finding from law enforcement which you know don't look to law enforcement for that right they're not finding it from the media because they feel like the media isn't covering it right um that's what naomi osaka was saying basically uh-huh. right why, is, why isn't the media co- covering this as an outrage right and then you start to a- ask questions about it and all those questions lead you down this red pill path, right? Well, yeah. it's because they don't give a shit about it. It's just because it's all a bunch of hypocritic, hypocritical liberals. And if you exit at that point, I just think you're kind of turning your back on the, the problem. And maybe it is yeah. something that we should turn our backs to. But I do think, like, yeah. you know, you have to at least go down that path if you're going to do well, it. I'm not saying you two are turning your backs against it for, for what it's <laughs> worth. I'm just saying that, like, uh, we're, that we're the typical liberal, wealthy Asian response, which would be to just ignore this, you know, and just be like, please don't make me seem racist. Please don't make me seem racist, you know? Like, that is a, I, I don't know. I think that that is sort of the abdication of at least, it's yeah. not a moral abdication, but it's at least an abdication of being a thinker. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It is an abdication of, like, of trying to think through these problems and come up with solutions. I think, I mean, there has been media coverage, right, in in local papers in the East Bay, and then now it's going a little bit more national. I did have a question, though, Jay, if you had a local gloss on it. So in other words, if there is, you know, over more than a year now, you're describing a trend of young black men who are attacking elderly Asians. Is there anything to know or try to understand about the conditions in the East Bay, about why that would be the it's case? It's not just in the East Bay. A lot of it was in San Francisco. Okay. 
or in the Bay Area. I don't know. I mean, yeah, is yeah. there? Um, I don't. I don't know, and nobody seems to have figured that out. Okay. You know, like is it like the way it looks? It looks like it's just people attacking people, and it almost is set up like a prank video or something like that. Like, haha, look at this. You know. And I don't know if that's what it is. I don't want to feed into any like myths about sure. the knockout game or whatever, yeah. right? Like I don't, I don't think that's what it is. I just think that like you know, I don't know what it is. But like when you watch the video, like I mean, you, you guys have both seen the video. I couldn't click like, on it. Shock- it, to be it, it it's shocking. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like the person is treated like a totally like a less not a human being. You know, it's like a joke to like harm a nine-year-old person when one of them dies. Yeah. You get really fucking mad about it, and yeah. um, I don't. There was the, there was the one in Minnesota also last spring where um, that was also circulating at the beginning of COVID, where these kids basically like roundhouse kicked a, uh, an old Asian woman at a bus stop. Oh wow! Yeah, and, and then was, there was a Filipino man who has like face sliced open last week in the New York City oh, subway, and so um, I don't know. I think that like it. Uh, I don't know how to process any of it or what people should do, but I don't think that we're going to stop people from thinking yeah. in terms of revenge and justice. And I think the more that we don't talk about it, the more people are going to seek that out, mm. right? Because they feel like every, every institution that's supposed to protect them has failed them. Yeah. And in this case, I'm sorry to say, but you're going to be failed by every single one of those institutions. Right. right. Like what, yeah. what else? It, like no one gives a shit when an old Asian person is, is killed. They don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're talking about two distinct things, which is the facts on the ground, which a lot of us don't know. And then the things we do when we don't know what's going on is like the yeah. sort of old habits we all kind of fall back into, especially the establishment. Right. All right. Let's move on to the next question. I apologize for being such a downer um, about this, but we got so many questions about that. I thought we should address it. Right. Yeah. Is there anything else you guys want to say? No, thank you, Kathy. I think that's a that's a good question. Yeah, repeat repeat listener question. I think she's been on here before. Awesome. Okay, next question is from Mateo, right? Yeah. Okay, Mateo writes to us. My parents, who live in a nice neighborhood in New York City, oppose the United Federation of Teachers, the New York City branch of the National Teachers Union, because they think school uh, reopening is as safe as shown in the data. And therefore, teachers should be willing to go back. I think they aren't aware of, A, the difficulties teachers face uh, slash how municipalities have abandoned them nationwide, and B, how massive disparities are between the public school that my younger sister attends and those in less affluent neighborhoods. I am curious what you all make of Asian parents not wanting to send their kids back to school. New York Times uh, reports that the biggest racial group against school reopening in New York City is Asians. Hmm. Do, you have, do we have any theories for why that's the case? <laughs> it's like race, it's just ones. so speculative. I have no reporting on I this. Know, I've I made know. no this calls. Is, this, is a, this, is a race, this is our race theory yeah. show. <laughs> so bad. They all wear masks, so they're very <laughs> conscious. Of, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's honestly what it is. It's like all the patterns we saw last spring was, um, especially those with connections back to Asia, who were the people who to first believe in COVID and take it seriously. And they're just really accustomed to like, you know, like public safety first, wear a mask everywhere, um, wait till you get vaccinated, I assume, you know. Um, But 
and I guess the question is sort of like that that group isn't that can't account for every single Asian American <laughs> Asian family especially in, in New York City yeah right yeah. so then it becomes sort of maybe it's like a cultural thing like these families hang out with each other it might I'm be sure like a lot of them true. are like fourth right fourth generation in the United States but it's just kind of as like the the sort of I don't know culture is a I don't really like the word culture but you know like it kind of like spreads yeah. like people people influence influence each other's thoughts maybe yeah yeah i was thinking that definitely in terms of the kind of newer immigrants that because in asia there's been a reevaluation of the data on school reopenings there that also you know because they're kind of ahead of us in terms of the data and our understanding of COVID, probably um you know gives people pause here and sent resending their kids to school despite like asian parents obsession with sending their kids to school but yeah so i do think that's probably part of it yeah, I don't. I don't really have any theories about why that is, but I do. I want to fixate on this one idea that, like, you know, I do think that people don't understand that some schools aren't ventilated and are mm-hmm. old and are kind of falling apart, yeah. and that they're poorly run. And that I do think that that informs a lot of your response to it, right? If you're like a, if you're in Park Slope, for example, your kid goes to PS three twenty one, which is like seventy percent white and is very nice, right? And you probably trust the teachers there, right? You, you, the school is updated, right? Like the, you trust that the ventilation, everything will be there. You trust the public school system because it works for you, right? And I think yeah. that with when the public school system has never worked for you, like you're going to be more skeptical of it. And I, I don't know why that wasn't always obvious from the beginning of the pandemic that that was going to be the response. But you know, like uh, the narrative was never that, right? It was always that, like uh, we talked about this yeah. last week, and. You know, um, we don't have to go over it again, <laughs> but <laughs> because I've our favorite debate, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. All right, next question. Well, I mean, yeah, like just really quickly, like Mateo, I think self-identifies, I think, as Asian, and in this question, like his parents are upper class, so we don't want to make it just cultural, right? It's like it's it's like upper class Asians might want to go back to school, so maybe what actually accounts for this is the fact that there are a lot of working class Asian Americans in New York City, perhaps. Oh, I so think definitely. Other. Yeah, I right, think. and th- and that might also be the other, the other. Um, so yeah, I regret making the culturalist argument. I apologize. No, but I think you were just saying that people talk to each other, which is true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, another question comes from Milos or Milos Milos. Um, can you talk about these liberals on Twitter who are clamoring about quote not forgetting <laughs> who enabled Trump, etc.? Like all these guys aren't going to be part of the Biden administration. <laughs> Now that Dems are already blaming leftists for the, quote, disappointing showing for their party, can you talk about how people are supposed to pull Biden left? Because that was a big refrain of the campaign, vote him in and then change his mind because it would be easier to change. If he's already blaming the left for almost losing, how does that work? Good question. Wait, what's the first? I don't understand the first half of this question. Well, I think the second second part. Yeah. 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 I think he's basically saying, like, there are people, liberals on Twitter who are saying that the left enabled Trump. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And this just oh, a strategic question of like, what do we do now? You know, how are we going to make uh, sure Biden doesn't ignore us? I think we should focus <laughs> on yeah, how, like because that conversation is really left. <laughs> yeah, not Seriously. left as in the left. It's yeah. gone. You know? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know anyone who's out there talking about 
polling Biden left. Mm. Now, I will say that some of the stuff that Biden has done has been surprisingly progressive, I would say. And then some of it has some of it has not been, you know. (laughs) So maybe that's part of it. Maybe people are just so exhausted by Trump that they need a few minutes, you know, or months to before they start pushing him left. I think that's a part of it. But like. Tammy, like, or either one of you, like, what, Tammy, what, what do you think? You're like, you're the one with the most experience in organizing uh, everything like that. Like, what, where, what, what is going on with this conversation about pulling Biden left? Does it exist anymore? He seems pretty oh left. We, we talked about this with Rosie. Like, his international foreign policy is going to be bad, but domestically, he's like pretty Bernie-ish um, in a way that, you know, I have this theory that you know that Bernie meme from two weeks ago. Mm-hmm that the reason i never found it funny and i told you guys this and you guys thought i was stupid but like i just never found it funny and my theory is that it's like the they made bernie this meme or part of the reason it was so popular was because everyone is still kind of repressing the trauma of what happened last march and they just want to get over the fact that they like totally pulled one over bernie and they want to be friends again and just kind of forget that bernie would represent this existential threat to the moderates and they want to like now make make Bernie into a, like a cute cuddly man, mm. right? In a big warm coat, <laughs> rather than rather than this guy who actually pulled out real problems with the Democratic Party that they're going to forget that that ever happened. But it does seem like as so, but that's like kind of part of this like process of like making him into a meme as part of this process where they're just kind of quietly adopting all of Bernie's policies um, because it seems like they have to now with COVID and they need a big stimulus mm. and they need a fifteen dollar minimum wage and. You know, he's not going to cancel all college student debt, but he, I guess they're going to go $10,000 or so, which is, you know, more than more than you could imagine with the Obama administration or any press administration. Yeah, that's true. So it does seem like Biden is pretty good on domestic uh, stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's necessity. part of it. I think it's like, it's kind of hard to get mad when your gut reaction is like, better than I expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, uh, he has offered, he has not gone the full hog on any of these policies, right? But he's kind of, like, nudged at them, and you're like, well, I can't get so mad because he at least is kind of in the right ballpark. Yeah. And so then if I get really hysterically mad when he's, like, meeting me part way, then should I, you know, I don't know. Now, I think international foreign policy stuff is a whole other conversation, but I think the small things that he's done domestically in this short period of time, um, they don't provide too much tinder. And maybe I don't think that Bern, I don't think Joe Biden or his staff stands up, stays up late thinking about, oh, what happens when all the like, you know, left when all the leftists on Twitter get met? like they don't give a shit. I, th- you know? I think we also um, I mean, I, I'm seeing some I'm seeing a lot of anger among immigrant rights activists over what's happening early in the Biden administration, a real dissatisfaction and about his basic return and resumption, you know, of deportation policies under Obama and not a lot of optimism about the border situation changing under him. So I think that's big. But one thing, I mean, I think also we're just not organized. Like, I don't, I mean, I think the immigrant rights people actually do have a lot of organization that has been built up over the last like 10, 15 years. But with regards to like environment or healthcare or workers' rights, like I don't, I just don't think there's really strong contingents with a very strong program in mind that are ready to battle him. So I think it's like exhaustion and lack of infrastructure. I mean, maybe that could change, but I actually, I also, I think that a lot of the early activism that, you know, the three of us were really excited about when we started this podcast last April has dissipated. 
You know, well, I was more hopeful then than I am now about the sort of smattering of semi-strike type worker actions. And then, of course, Black Lives Matter. I'm not saying that none of that led anywhere, but I don't think it led to kind of the sort of strong forms of infrastructure I thought we might see in some organizing spaces. Right. So we're like kind abol- of the abolition movement seems to be exactly where the abolition kind of, movement was last yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, I think right? there are Before, more people yeah. who are awakened to the rhetoric and the the sort of opportunities that abolition opens up for us, like theoretically. But I just, yeah, I guess I I'm feeling a little bit down about kind of where how le- organized different segments of the left are right now. Yeah. Hmm. What, what do you think, uh, Tim? What do you think? What do you think accounts for that? Because I. I don't know. Now that you say it, it seems like you, I don't know. I, it's like one of these many times in this show, Tammy says something, <laughs> and I haven't thought about it. And my response is like, "Oh, Tammy's right," you know. Like, but like, so this is definitely a point where I'm like, "Oh, of course, Tammy's right." Like, I don't. I think that we should not give that there should be a left that call that does get mad at Joe Biden all the time, even when yeah. he is kind of like nudging at the problem, right? And I think that's what Milos is saying, and. Uh, and especially in terms of like workers' rights, in terms of stimulus spending, in terms of the environment, in terms of jobs, right? In terms of, in terms of his relationship with unions, like all these types of things are very important in terms of, you know, if the left is going to eke out any victories during this period of time. But you th- it, maybe it is just that like outside of immigrant rights, which as you say, have su- has such a big infrastructure. Um, maybe, that, maybe that infrastructure doesn't exist. Why, why do you think it's not there right now? I don't know. I mean, just to take like labor as an example, I mean, obviously the unions, you know, the kind of big unions, mainstream unions, that's one thing. And, you know, they've always been very cozy with the Democrats. And then, you know, more insurgent unions will always be a little bit less powerful. But I think there's some of this complacency, like that Andy was identifying, like he is supporting the PRO Act. He is like talking about child care, you know, so there mm-hmm. are, there are essentially like these early concessions that kind of are making the more mainstream unions, I think, back off of him. And then just in terms of, like, insurgent organizing, like, I just don't – I think there is, like, a lot of it in small places, but I don't think we're networked to each other. Oh, so you're talking about that child care bill that would give uh, $5,000, $7,000 or whatever for each kid that you have. Yeah, it's kind of like a – it's kind of a – a form that's like stronger and more universal than earned income tax credit, but essentially would like, yeah, yeah, right. So there are these sort of like worker and kind of family, you know, care, like labor of care type initiatives that he's been pushing. So I don't know, just as one example, like I, I think the portions of labor that are organized are fine with what he's doing. And then the, the portions that are not fine with it and are, angry that Jeff Bezos is making a bajillion dollars while people are dying in Amazon warehouses. We're not like organized and networked enough to like do anything outside of like our small spaces. So that needs to change. But do you think if you that guys any of, this is a total, this is such a troll question and I don't believe it. So, you know, preface it that way. Do you think a part of it is because so much of the organizing that did happen on the left was, you know, just around the single goal of getting Bernie Sanders elected? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting up my... I'm is that, up that's my, not a loaded question, is it? I know. This is like, if I was like a neoliberal troll, this would be like the, the, yeah, the yeah. ultimate question. I'd be like, maybe that's I guys should have organized around something else, you know? <laughs> I do... I do I, so to the extent Biden has 
been pretty good on a lot of these issues, I actually wondered to myself, is it because by, uh, you know, Bernie and to, to a similar extent, Warren did so well that the brain trust of the party was like, all right, we got to, like, it's, it's time to move a little bit further that direction. Or is it just that COVID is just such a fucking disaster mm-hmm. that they are just more willing to entertain crazier policies? It's like, and, you know, people have, people have talked about there's a memory from 2008 where they didn't go big enough. And um, a lot of the same, as we know, a lot of the same people in the Biden administration are all, were also in the Obama administration, Obama yeah. administration. And I think there is a discussion about like, we should, uh, we should do what we failed to do in 2008, right? Which is mm. go even bigger. Yeah. And yeah. uh, I can't decide. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't think anyone knows. But I think those are two things that are in play, right? Like the memory yeah. of last year's primary where Biden so. got creamed. Those like there's three or four primaries. Um, and also COVID being this much larger problem than they ever imagined. And, and I think they, they understand that they have some very charismatic and very, you know, um, clout heavy people among their ranks who are going to call them out if they don't do this type of stuff and that um as much as like the narrative is like we're they're like sort of neutering or castrating or whatever right like sort of knee handicapping the squad i think they're pretty scared of them you know mm-hmm. and that the real question will be that after this small spate of concessions if they'll go right back to the stuff yeah. that they want to do and then that's when the organization really needs to be there hold them to account but i don't know what those organizations would be at this point right like um i don't know if it's going to come from labor um you know and i don't know if it's going to come from activist organizations so milos i don't know it's a good question i don't know what the answer is i don't think any of us know um i think also like on a more dystopian note um you know not all (laughs) because of some of these temporary moratoria you know like on evictions and things like rent's gonna soon come due like, we haven't hit that. The shit hasn't to- fully hit the fan yet because some of this stuff has been delayed. So I just, yeah, I mean, there should, we should be all in the streets, like, making sure people don't get evicted and that they don't have to pay back rents when they can't afford it. That you know? re- yeah, that is the next flashpoint, especially here, Tammy. Oh, my like, God, uh, yeah. In California. What's that going to look like? The When rent comes due and all these people get evicted, like it's, and then the whole rental market crashes and, you know, everything else crashes along with it. And the homeless problem, you know, escalates, right? Or um, there's going to be a real political reckoning here for a lot of people. Yeah. And, um, and everybody is kind of bracing for it. But they're also kind of not thinking about it because they're worried about the fucking pandemic, right? Yeah. But there are a lot of people who are quietly being evicted all over the Bay mm-hmm. Area despite a eviction moratorium i don't think they're going to renew i don't think they're going to extend it right and then and then i think that is a very good time i think where people should go out and they should stop evictions and luckily here in the bay area i don't think this is true nationally we do have a tradition Mm -hmm. of that you know through carol five through other people like you know sort of putting your bodies in front of houses type of stuff and i think that's the type of action that we should hope for and that we should you know participate in when we can mm-hmm. i agree i don't know that's, that's a good idea yeah good i'm gonna okay, do we that, have plans tammy. now <laughs> oh, no. i know tammy if you want to fly out and stand <laughs> in front of a house with me <laughs> oh my god um i'm gonna do it um you know i don't know i've you know as you know i i uh yeah you don't have much to do anyway but, 
Well, no, I just like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to say this without sounding crazy, but like, it is good to go to a certain amount of protest for things that you believe in over a certain amount of time. Maybe it is some sort of Korean thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't really feel like I'm engaged unless I do that, you know? And I think that these upcoming evictions is a good, good place to do it. Um, I don't know what else would be going on. Go to like a, uh, you know, anti-mask rally or something <laughs> like that. I don't know what else there would be. <laughs> um, okay, we're go- we've gone over our time. Thank you for listening to our show. Um, as always, you can support us now on Patreon at uh, oh, patreon.com slash ttsgpod. Is that right? Um, or you, let me look that up. Yes. Patreon.com slash TTSG pod. Um, you can email us still at, uh, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. And, uh, we have, as we said at the beginning of the show, we really have appreciated your support so far. Uh, we hope more of you will support the show. Um, I, we have a lot of things planned. This week we're going to be launching our Telegram chat, which uh, you know we'll be sending all of you patrons the link to. Um, and it's going to just start off as like one chat room. If it grows too big, and we need separate rooms, and we'll think about maybe another app or something like that. But I don't know. I like Telegram. Tim and Andy like Telegram, and I think I I think the three of us hate Slack. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so Slack would be a good way to do it. But I you know like I don't know. I don't want I don't want to burn anyone feel like you're at work um and <laughs> slack always just reminds me of working at vice and just being like getting a little slack messages being like you have to come in here and retract your vo and i'd, and I'd be like i'm not even anywhere close to the office right now i'm sorry <laughs> um, i'm not coming in to retract that vo uh, <laughs> and then of course i'd always come in and retract the vo because you know, in the end it's like i don't want to screw over the person um yeah, so uh, we will have that out. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening to the show. And uh, we will see you next week.